Good morning. If we could keep that slide up there for just a moment as we begin, I'd like to draw your attention in thinking of that song, especially if that's going to be our theme song, to Galatians chapter 5. Could you take your Bibles and look with me at Galatians chapter 5? Galatians chapter 5 and verse 16 says this, This I say then, walk in the Spirit. Walk in the Spirit. So the song here is one step at a time. Can I add an addendum to it? One step at a time in the Holy Spirit. Only one step at a time will the Holy Spirit guide you. This is the way that the Holy Spirit will lead you. So often we think of life as, as, as a journey, and it's a path in which we walk on. And, and sometimes we just want to go right to the top of the mountain, right? But God leads us one step at a time, and every step at a time is not, is not fretfully, it's not fearfully, it's not worryingful, it is trusting. One step at a time, trusting in Jesus, following His Holy Spirit. Walking in the Spirit means to let, as we learned in our, well, last year, our theme song, let the Lord have His way. Let Him have His way in our life. Yield to Him and let the Holy Spirit lead you one step at a time and keep focused on Him. So he says here, this command, this I say then, walk in the Spirit and ye shall not fulfill the lusts of the flesh. Walk in the Spirit. Well, let's switch over to my screen if we could. We, I'd like to, as we begin here again this morning, to take some time to be um, hearers and doers of the Word. And last week in Bible Hour, we were looking at Romans chapter, or not Romans chapter, Acts chapter 14. And so as we begin, I'd like to ask you, what are some applications, what are some lessons that we can learn from Acts chapter 14 that we looked at last week? Now, we talked about a few in Bible Hour, and that's, if you remember those, please share. Or if there's some others that as you meditated on it this week and sought to not just be hearers but doers of the Word, what are some lessons that we learned from Acts chapter 14? Anyone like to share? Well, as you're turning there and thinking, oh, Miss Foltz, yes. Yeah, so she said verse 3 spoke to her of speaking boldly in the Lord, which gave testimony unto the word of his grace. And she said this spoke to her in being a faithful witness. Yes, boldness. We can be bold about the gospel. Faithful every day, looking for opportunities. So one of our questions is, are there examples to follow? Is that an example to follow? Yes or no? Yes, yes that's an example to follow. To be bold in sharing the gospel. Anything else from this chapter last week? Lessons? application to your life.
just to review another one for me, is in verse 22, where the missionaries came back to the villages and towns, confirming the souls of the disciples and exhorting them to continue in the faith. You know, there's times when I go through a day and I'm tempted to just quit. Continue in the faith. New thoughts about God. Remember when we talked about these questions? You might say, well, that's nothing new. (laughs) That's going to be our theme song, or he's thinking about it being our theme song, one step at a time. That's what this is talking about. One step at a time, continuing in the faith, continuing trusting in Jesus, continue hoping in him. Anything else that stood out to you? Yes, Christopher. Yes, I agree. Very good application there for our church. Other observations, applications that we can draw that you've noticed in this chapter. Yes, Brother Ray. Yes. Amen. Thank you. So, do you have faith? And continue in the faith. Other things. Anything else? Others? Well, last week we also looked at Romans chapter 6, didn't we? And um, I encouraged you in this week to remember your baptism. Remember that? Well, I first of all asked you if you've been baptized and that is baptized into the body of Christ. Are you a member of the body of Christ? Are you part of Christ? Have you been saved? Have you had your sins forgiven? And do you remember that baptism, that putting into? Because no matter what we face day by day, temptations, trials, failures, 
the hope of it all is to remember and to live in the reality, the truth, that we are in Christ. And so I hope in this week that that truth was real to you. So I encourage you and I remind you again, remember your baptism. Not just your water baptism. Your baptism into the body of Christ. Well, wonderful. This week, we're going to go back to our historical study in the Old Testament. And I've got some news for you. Did you hear the news? Well, you might be saying, what news? Let me put you back in context. Go with me back in time to the ancient days of the Babylonian and the Medo-Persian Empire. Right there in the transition. Imagine with me that you're one of the Jews. You yourself or your parents or your grandparents had been carried away captive from the promised land. You had been taken as a captive and as a prisoner from the promised land, and you'd been taken to foreign lands. Place is not your home. Perhaps you've had a hard time learning the language of the Babylonians the Chaldeans. What did you hear the news now? His majesty, King Cyrus, has issued a decree. And the decree is that all Jews who know their God can go back to the promised land. Now some of you are just looking at me weird. Some of you just blink. Now if you really were with me back in the days of the media Persian Empire when this news went forth. Some of you wouldn't have been surprised at all because God said that would happen. In fact, God even named the guy who would say it to it. But you know what? Whether or not you expected it or were surprised by the news, I think many, most Jews were excited very excited we get to go back to the promised land you're all thinking no i'm fine right where i'm at well no imagine that you're a jew in captivity and the news comes from the king he says this at the last verse of second chronicles the king of cyrus the king cyrus the king of persia and, and he declares to all the kingdoms of the earth. Now listen to this. This is amazing. The last verse of 2 Chronicles, 2 Chronicles says this. Thus saith Cyrus, king of Persia, all the kingdoms of the earth hath the Lord God of heaven given me. And he hath charged me to build him a house in Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Who is there among you of all his people? The Lord his God be with him and let him go up to Jerusalem. Where's all the excitement? Where's the cheer? Yeah, yeah, this is wonderful news. You know, I kind of knew you would all kind of be blank with me. So I was going to make a point out of it. I heard a little bit of crowd over here. Oh, that's exciting. You guys are excited about going? You know what? There was very few that were excited about going back. Most of them were all like these people. 
I'm serious. It was really a tragedy. The news has come. We got to go back to the promised land. In fact, the king has ordered it. Not only did the king order this, but he also went into the treasuries of the Babylonians and he had the archivist pull out all the stuff that actually was carried away captive from Jerusalem and he gives it to you and commands you to go and to build the, rebuild the temple in Jerusalem. Many people did go up, but I'm going to tell you, a lot of the Jews decided, you know what? We're good right here. And that's kind of hard to look back to think. What should or shouldn't they have done? Well, in all of it, regardless of whether or not they should have stayed in the foreign lands of captivity or gone back to Jerusalem, many stayed in their foreign lands of captivity. And in that, God was going to orchestrate events to save Jews all across the Persian Empire. Through Esther. Now, how many of you know who Esther is? Oh, good! Forget everything you know. Now, I oftentimes say that as a joke, but I'm actually more so in earnest right now. You know why? Because Esther is one of those absolutely exciting stories in history. And everybody loves the history and the story of Esther. And so everybody has to draw pictures about it. And everybody has to make movies about it. And everybody has to write storybooks about it. And most of the time they get it wrong. It's kind of sad. Guess what? There is no magic necklace in the history of Esther. Some of you are looking at me with blank faces. You don't know what I'm talking about. And some of you are smiling at me. Well, uh, there's a movie who makes a big deal about a magic necklace. Guess what? When Ahasuerus, King Xerxes, called for Vashti, he didn't ask for a sandwich. Now, some of you are looking at me with a blank face, and some of you know exactly what I'm talking about. Because there is a famous children's movie that makes it out that King Xerxes asked his wife for a sandwich to make him a sandwich, and she declined it. Now, as you know the story, you might be kind of like, boy, there's a big difference between what Ahasuerus was asking for and making a sandwich. That's part of the reason why I say, forget everything you know. Oh, by the way, another note. It wasn't a grand piano that fell from the ceiling. Some of you know what I'm talking about. I haven't seen that movie, but oh, about uh, 18 years ago, I was teaching on the history of Esther, the history of Esther, not the story of Esther. And I was talking about and telling the story, and um, all of a sudden, there was this little six-year-old who popped his hand up, and he says... Mr. Stephen, that's not the way it went. <laughs> Little seven-year-old. And I looked at my Bible, and I said, well, how did it go? And he says, a grand piano fell on top of them. Oh, 
I had a very hard time explaining to a 70-year-old that what he had seen in a movie, animated movie, wasn't history. It was a made-up story. Now, I love stories. I love stories. But I want to give you a little pet peeve of mine, and some of you already know this, and some of you actually disagree with me on that, and that's okay. Um, I struggle with, I, well, let me put it this way. I love historical fiction. I love historical fiction. It helps me to understand history. But you know, when it comes to the biblical record of history, <laughs> I struggle with historical fiction. You know why? Because you know, when it comes to the Civil War, when it comes to the Revolutionary War, when it comes to ancient Egypt, we've got all kinds of records about it. And most of the time, the records are biased one way or the other, and they're not real necessarily reliable. Oh, but when it comes to the history that I find in this book, it's reliable, it's accurate, it's not biased. And so, considering that is why I struggle with creating fiction around this history, because this history is inspired by God, it is accurate, and it is reliable. It's very important for us. So, I'll tell you where I'm at. Create all the historical fiction you want. And you might say, well, pastor, you're a little inconsistent because I hear you speculating sometimes. You're right. I do. Sometimes we learn things from other parts of history and other records that are outside of the Bible that help us to understand the Bible. And that's good. But we have to be careful to distinguish from what we are taking that is extra-biblical history and also what is speculative and be careful to identify it as speculative or extra-biblical history, and to be careful that we look to this as the ultimate and final authority. So again, I say to you, forget what you know. Well, unless it's in this book. And then I want to encourage you to, no matter what you know or think you know, to look to learn more and to be reminded of important truths you already know. And one way that I like to help you do that is with our family Bible reading. This is a little booklet that I have. I've just got one copy right now, and I'm going to pass around a clipboard for you to sign up for how many copies you want in your families. This is designed for you as individuals and ideally as families to, at home, go through the journey through Esther using the Bible as our base. And so they're called family Bible readings. And what it is is a list of questions. Read this portion of scripture and look for the answers to these questions. That's the goal of it. And it's something that, you know, you kids can do. You can sign up and do it all by yourself. But can I offer a suggestion to you? I think you'll get the most out of it if you'll take one time in a week of your family devotions. What are family devotions? That's when you as a family gather together to pray, to read God's word, to know him better. And just take one of those in a week and take the time to review and to read ahead for what we're going to learn in Bible Hour about Esther. It will help you as individuals. It will help you 
as families. It will help us all to not just be hearers of the word, but doers. Because then at that time, in that small group as a family, in the issues and things you are dealing with as a family, you can seek to learn the lessons from the lives, the people, the truths presented in Esther. And so, I am going to pass around this clipboard, and you can, I, I didn't want to just print 150 copies and have them all go to waste. So, you like a copy, please write down your name and the number of copies your family would like, and we'll get those ready for you next week. So, you can get this down this way, and then bring it back up this way, and then I'll get it back up here in the front. So, that's the first part of looking at the book of Esther. So, now, let's look at the book of Esther. Where is it? in the Bible. Well, it comes right after 2 Chronicles. Well, no, it doesn't. You have 2 Chronicles, Ezra, Nehemiah, Esther. Do they go together? Well, let's look at a timeline, so to speak, that we've looked at before of the 11 foundational books of the Old Testament. These are the 11 books of the Old Testament that show to us the history of the Old Testament. Now, there's 37 books in all, but these 11 cover the basic history of the Old Testament. Now, do any of you, Bible scholars, know where the book of Esther fits in to these 11 foundational books? Does it go in the book of Genesis? I just heard a few mumbles. Does it go in the book of Genesis? No. Okay. Who would like to tell me where they think it goes? Ben. The 70 year exile. You're close. You're close, but not quite. Jesse? Ah, Ezra and Nehemiah. Yes, that's where the book goes. It goes right there under Ezra, and it's about 30 years before Nehemiah. It's after the captivity. It's after Cyrus issued that news. Hey, you can go back to Jerusalem. In fact, it's not. You can go back to Jerusalem. The decree was issued. That happened, and that ended the 70-year captivity, and Ezra, the Levite, was the one who led many people back to Jerusalem in rebuilding the temple. And Esther fits in the history right there. Now let's look at time and major events. You've all seen this timeline before, haven't you? Where we divide world history into three sections of 2,000 years. The first 2,000 years there are recorded for us in Genesis chapter 1 through 11. The second 2,000 years of history are recorded for us in Genesis chapter 12, through Luke chapter 2, or the Gospels. And then we have the 2,000 years since, which is the church age. But let's look here. We have creation, and we have the fall. We have the flood. We have the Tower of Babel. I hope you all know what these events are. We have the patriarchs. Those are the fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. We have Moses and Joshua, the Exodus. We have the era of the judges, you know, Samson, Othniel, those men. We have the era of the kings, beginning with Saul, David, Solomon, Rehoboam, Jeroboam, all those kings. Then we have the era of the captivity, 
and the restoration. Then we have what we call the intertestament. That's the part that's in between the Old and the New Testament, where all we have is prophecy of that period of history. And then we have the coming of Jesus Christ. When he was born, he lived a sinless, perfect life. He died for the sins of the world, was buried, rose again, and ascended to heaven. And then begins the church age, which leads us to today. Now you have all those options up there. Where do you think in that timeline of history we find the book of Esther? William? Is he right, yes or no? Yes, he's right. Now, see, Ben, it's the captivity and restoration. Yes, he's right there in the restoration time period. That's where the book of Esther happens. But it's important for us to consider the captivity. Let's look here. You've seen this timeline before. We see Daniel there, the big white bar that goes all the way across the page. Daniel, and here we see 606 BC when Daniel was carried away captive. This is the beginning of the 70-year captivity. Do you see near the top of the page that little dotted gray line that says 70-year captivity? That marks a 70-year captivity beginning in 606 BC. If we continue down through, you remember there were three captivities when Kaniah was carried away captive in 597 B.C., and then we have the final destruction of Jerusalem and the captivity of the people in 586 B.C., and then in the fulfillment of the prophecy made by Jeremiah in 536 B.C., Cyrus the Great issues the decree, the commandment that the Jews, those who are of the Lord God, can go back to Jerusalem and are ordered to rebuild the temple. And so we have the captivity. It's important for us to understand the captivity because this is how things fit together. In 606 BC, we have the first deportation, which is when Daniel and his friends and the princes of Judah were carried away captive. 597 BC was the second deportation when 10,000 skilled laborers were carried away captive along with King Jeconiah and Ezekiel. And then in the third deportation and the destruction of Jerusalem, all the rest were carried away captive, leaving only the poor of the land. This is how Mordecai's family, Esther's family, found themselves in a faraway land. In this middle deportation, that second deportation, is when the family of Mordecai and Esther, those names whom you may not know who are yet, but we're going to learn about them, Mordecai and Esther, were their families were carried away captive in that Second, captivity. But let's look at another line to help us understand and see how and where Esther fits in history. In 539 B.C., Babylon falls. You remember that? Belshazzar's having his drunken feast, and there's the handwriting on the wall. That very night, the Medes and the Persians entered the great city of Babylon, and the great, magnificent, golden empire of Babylon fell and the rise of the media persian Empire increased. It was then, in 536 B.C., that Cyrus the Great issued the decree to rebuild the temple. The people went back under Ezra to rebuild the temple. But I got sad news for you. They ran out of money, and they ran out of vision, and they ran out of passion. And they quit! Really sad. God called a prophet, Habakkuk, to inspire them 
to continue on building that temple. And so it tells us that in 520 B.C., the work on the temple resumed. It picked up again. It started up again. And then in 516 B.C., four years later, that temple was finished. But you know what? There were still very few Jews back in the promised land. Most of the Jews stayed in their captive foreign lands. They didn't come back to the promised land. There were very few people there. And there is where the history of Esther sets right in the middle of this. We come to 483 B.C., and I'm going to give you just an overview of the history. When Ahasuerus, Greek named Xerxes I, had his drunken feast that lasted for a long time, and then a seven-day feast to climax it all when he demanded that his wife Vashti be brought in to be displayed to all. She refused. She was deposed. That means she was removed from being queen. And a few years later then is when, in 478 B.C., Esther, Esther Hadassah, that's her Hebrew name, was made queen. And then we have in 473 B.C. the Feast of Purim, which is the celebration of the Jews' victory over the attempted annihilation, holocaust of the Jews under Haman. The Feast of Purim, that feast they celebrate the deliverance of the Jews. And so here you can see Babylon falls, the temple is rebuilt, and then the book of Esther fits in nice and snug right there. Before, if we continue in our timeline, another king issues the decree that the walls of Jerusalem be rebuilt, and Nehemiah returns to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. And then we go a little bit further in history, and we come to Malachi, the end of the Old Testament. The end of the Old Testament in 433 B.C. And so do you see where it fits here in the history? Sometimes for me, I get things muddled. I, I'm, kind of like, I'm kind of like you, Ben. It's the captivity. And all the details of the restoration are just kind of confusing. And part of the reason for that is because some of them are recorded in Chronicles, and some of it's recorded in Ezra, and some of it's recorded in Nehemiah, and some of it's recorded in Esther. And it's kind of hard for us to put it all together. So here this timeline can help you to see to put it all together. The white events there in the middle are the book of Esther that kind of fall right there in between the history of Ezra and the rebuilding of the temple and then the history of Nehemiah and the rebuilding of the walls of Jerusalem. Esther fits right there in between the two. In your family Bible reading, I have listed for you an acronym, just like we had in Daniel. And our acronym for Esther is Purim Feast. Now, what is Purim Feast? I'm curious, when I use that word Purim, how many of you know what I'm talking about? It's okay if you don't, but I'd like to know how many of you know what I'm talking about. Okay. Well, let me explain this. So the whole history of Esther, the book of, his, of Esther, is the history of a Jewish feast called Purim. The word Purim is a Hebrew word that means lots. You know, like the casting of lots 
or kind of, you might say, the rolling of dice. And the reason they call it the Feast of Lots is because an evil, evil, evil man drew lots, rolled the dice to decide when he was going to destroy all the Jews in the whole world. That was the, that's, really, that's really what the, the, the perspective of Esther is, is the deliverance of all the Jews whom Haman wanted to destroy in all the world. And he decided how to do this by lot. And so it turns out that it was almost a whole year later that the lot fell out to him, that you might say rolling of dice. And so the Jews look to that and they celebrate the fact that in all of that, God protected them in that day in which Haman and the whole kingdom wanted to destroy them all. And so every year, the Jews, since this time, celebrate the Purim feast. It's not a feast from the days of Moses and Aaron way back at the Exodus, Mount Sinai. It's a feast that came about during there near the end of the Old Testament. And it's a feast that the history of it is recorded in Esther. So it's the Purim feast. So if we look at this as an acronym of all of the chapters of Esther, we find that we have a Persian decree against Vashti in chapter 1. You, Uncle Mordecai, saves the king, and Esther is made queen, chapter 2. Then the revenge plotted by Haman, chapter 3. Intercession made to Esther, chapter 4. Making dinner for Ahasuerus, chapter 5. Favor shown to Mordecai in chapter 6. Esther requests her life in chapter 7. Ahasuerus gives Mordecai promotion in chapter 8. The sons of Haman hanged, chapter 9. And last, the testimony to Mordecai's greatness and the proclamation of this new Jewish feast called Purim. So there we have a basic outline. I hope you might take time to learn that. And that way you can understand the chapters as we go through the book of Esther. Now in all history, we have time and we've looked at that. Where did it happen in history? We've looked at that. And we have people and we have places, right? These are the things that make history hard and these are the things that make history so fascinating. Is the time, the people, the places. We've seen the time Now let's look at the people. We have some key figures, main characters in this history. First of all, we have King Ahasuerus. Ahasuerus is a Hebrew word. Many identify him, not necessarily accurately, but he is generally identified as the great Persian king, Xerxes I. He was powerful. He was great. He was, in some ways, the most almighty guy in the world. Sometimes he thought himself that way. But let me tell you something else. He was also a drunkard. He was perverted, and he was cruel. Here, by the way, is just a note of some of the popular stories about this time period of history. When you see Ahasuerus, especially at the beginning, presented as some nice guy, He ain't a nice guy. He is not a nice guy. He is a very perverted, evil, wicked, really, to put it bluntly, disgusting man. King Ahasuerus. Sorry if I just ruined your picture of Ahasuerus. 
It's not me. It's what the scriptures record about him. He's not a good guy. He has a wife, and her name is Vashti. And by the way, um, she is his wife, but he has a whole other group of women that are kind of like wives, and we're going to learn more about that later. But anyway, Vashti. Um, you also might hear about this lady, and there's some things interesting about her. We're going to have to look at some things interesting about her. But she's a queen, and from the Bible, we get very little information about her, except for how she interacted with the king when he um, demanded of her what he demanded of her. And, but yet, outside of biblical records, we find out she too was not actually the most kind, gracious kind of lady. She was actually also known in secular history as being very cruel. Then we have Esther, or Hadassah. Now, Hadassah is her Hebrew name. And in some ways, I like to call them by their Hebrew names. Remember, in, in all of Daniel, you know, Daniel had a Babylonian name. Anybody remember what his Chaldean name was? Belteshazzar, you're right. He was given a pagan name when he came to Babylon. The same here is interesting and true of Hadassah. Hadassah, how many of you like being named after flowers or after beautiful trees? Well, Hadassah is a Hebrew name after a beautiful plant called the myrtle tree. How many of you want to be called myrtle? Myrtle tree. She was named after the myrtle tree. Her name means myrtle tree, Hadassah. But she also had a Persian name, and that name is Esther. And there's a lot of debate as to what that name means. It possibly means that she was named after a pagan god, kind of like Daniel, which wouldn't be a surprise. Or there's another word that means star. And so she was named star. She went from being named after a tree to being named after a star or named after a god. Maybe you might want to stick with the star or the tree, not the god one. But it might still be the god. We can't rule that out. So we have Esther. And then we have Mordecai. Mordecai identified as her uncle. How were they actually related? Here you can see a family tree of them. They were actually more like cousins in the technical relationship. The technical relationship. They were cousins. Why is he like an uncle? Well, there's lots of discussion on this. People say, well, if they were cousins, then you know, why, is she, why does she call him an uncle? Um, I can tell you why. is because I have a cousin that I call aunt because she's so much older than me. I have a cousin whom I call aunt because she's so much older than me. And sometimes people like this don't quite get this, but to illustrate it, in my extended family, in the Walter extended family, all of us cousins, if you were to take the oldest cousin and the youngest cousin, you have any ideas of what the age span difference is? It's quite interesting. Let me illustrate it by showing you a person. Naomi, come here. Come here, come here. In the Walter extended family of all of the cousins, the age span between the oldest and the youngest cousin is the same difference between me and Naomi. Do you see why? How possibly, quite so, uh, Esther could have been like a younger cousin and Mordecai was an older cousin? I mean, she's my daughter and she's not even my first daughter. She's down a little ways. And boy, wait till you see how this happens in the Wesco family. You know, oh my. The oldest cousin is born in 2004 or 5. I don't know which it is. And little Edward's the newest one. Already there's 19 years and they're just getting started. 
Thank you, Naomi. So you find here they were cousins, but um, Esther treated Mordecai very much like an uncle. And then we've got Haman. Now, I'm kind of surprised nobody has done this yet to me. Oh, somebody just did it. Did you hear that? You know when the Jews celebrate the Feast of Purim, you know one of the things they do? They take their Hebrew scriptures and they read the history of Esther. They read the book of Esther. And every time the name of Haman is read, the reader gets quiet for a second because everybody goes, that's when it's supposed to be, you know, just quiet so everybody can follow the story. But when they want to get everybody involved, they give all the kids and all the grown-ups rattlers. And every time they come to the name Haman, everybody goes, and they rattle their rattlers. Why? Because they don't even want to hear his name, that bad, 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 bad man. That bad, bad, bad man who wanted to make sure no Jews ever existed. See, they're kind of playing it back on him. Haman wanted the, a total destruction of Jews. No more Jews. He wanted people to forget Jews even existed, as if they didn't exist. He wanted to annihilate them. And so, that's why the Jews hiss or rattle it out to blot out Haman's name. Because that's what he wanted to do to the Jews. So they kind of do it in the reading back on him. Now, I've debated whether or not every time you hear the word Haman for you to rattle and hiss. But you know, if you wanted to hiss, you, I'm okay with that because that doesn't keep us from keeping on. All the rattles might keep us from keeping on. But whenever you hear the Haman, yes. Haman's this bad, bad, bad man. He is great and powerful in the kingdom. He's like right up there with the king. In fact, he actually acts like the king most of the time. And I won't tell you what happens to him, but it's not exactly pleasant. So we have seen time and people. Now, when we talk about places, there's another little part I'd like for us to look at. Do you remember this? These are the visions of Daniel. These have already been given in bygone years. Why? Many, many, many years before. Daniel told of the Medo-Persian Empire before the Medo-Persian Empire was even hardly a recognized nation. Now we have found the head of gold of Babylon, the lion of Babylon, has fallen. And in its place has risen up the arms and chest of Medo-Persia, the bear with the ribs in his mouth, and the ram of Media Persia has risen up in power. And don't forget, Greece is coming. Greece, the belly and thighs of bronze, that multi-headed leper, and that goat with the one horn. It's coming. So the kingdoms, here we have the kingdoms, the empires. And now we're in the Media Persian Empire. We're right now in the silver arms and chest and the bear with the ribs and the ram with the two horns. Notice the two, 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 the two arms, the bear up on its side, and the, um, the two horns, that's the Medio Persia, the two kingdoms really becoming one, Media Persia Empire. Here we can see our map. 
places. We have Jerusalem. You see the star over here on the left of the screen. Jerusalem. That's where the temple was rebuilt. That's where the Jews were commanded to go back. But Mordecai and Esther's family didn't go back to Jerusalem. Here is Babylon, the great city that's fallen. And all of the events that take place in Esther take place in Shushan, Susa, the winter palace of the Persian kings. It is what we know from secular history recorded was a beautiful city and a great city. It was the luxury party city of the Persian kings. Shushan, the royal palace. So you can see the major places, Jerusalem, Babylon, Shushan. Here are these lines here. This is the Euphrates and Tigris River. Just to cap you, there's Nineveh. So the great kingdoms that have come, we've seen Nineveh, the Assyrians, then the Babylonians, and now the, the Medo-Persians, and their empire stretched fast. Vast empire, as recorded. Here you can see it's shown, and again, just a little star there, so you can see Shushan, the palace. There is the time, the people, the places of Esther. We also saw the kingdoms of Esther. What's the theme of the Purim feast? What is the theme of this book? Elijah? God protects his people. Very good. But I got a question. He said God protects his people. Did you know that in the entire book of Esther, God is never named? Never named. Not even one time. So I got a question, Elijah. If the theme is that God protects his people, why did you why are you talking about God? God is never even named in the book. Anybody want to help him out? Christopher. You're, you're right. History is his, God's story. Well, you know what we find out in the book of Esther? Even though God is never named and specifically identified, we see his sovereign hand in everything. What's that mean? Sovereign means that God reigns supreme. God reigns in his control, in control of everything. God reigns sovereign. And we find all through this book, when we open our eyes and start watching, events that happen over and over and over where God is not identified but clearly, someone, God, is orchestrating the events and the details just so and in just such a way to accomplish his will in protecting the Jews. So the theme of the book is indeed God's protection of the Jews. And when we talk about God, it's his sovereignty. Here's the lesson for all of us when we go through our life this week and today. Are we looking for God? Remember the song we sang earlier? One step at a time. 
In every step that we take, are we looking for God and how God is orchestrating events around us and to see what step and what He wants us to do? It will result in two things in our life. One, it will give us peace. You know why? We can have peace when everything's falling apart. There's a holocaust of the Jews in the Esther taking place, about to happen. That sounds like something to be pretty scared of, doesn't it? But you know when we understand the sovereignty of God, that God is in control of everything in spite of whatever the holocaust is, we can have peace in it, knowing that God is in control. It also gives us something else, is that when we know that God is in control, it gives us peace, but it also then gives us boldness to do what is right, even if it's dangerous. Even if it's dangerous. You see, when we know that God is in control, we have peace to then be bold to do what we know he wants us to do. And that's what we see in the book of Esther. God is sovereign over all, and we see people who are courageous and bold in going forth and doing what is right, in spite of a lot of other people doing what is absolutely not right. So this week, no matter what people are doing around you, don't forget that God is over all. This week, don't forget that and do right. Do right. Take one step at a time in the Spirit of God and do right. Do right. Gracious God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the history of Esther. I pray that in the coming weeks, we would learn, we would grow, we would know more of you, that we would be more sensitive to you around us and how you are working and things you are doing, that it might result in a peace that passeth understanding. And it might also motivate us, encourage us, strengthen us to do right in your power and in your strength, one step at a time. We need you. We seek you now. We praise you in all things. And it's in your name we pray. Amen.